All right, well, good morning. Uh, it's very good to see everybody and uh, back at it here with Sunday School. So it is very tight and close, so that's fine. That's fine. I apologize. So I don't spit, I don't think. So um, let's uh, get started. I'll open up with uh, reading from God's Word and prayer. I'll read from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as a covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the ministry of Christ. We're thankful for your work through him, that you call us to worship you, and that you meet with us and commune with us, and we are restored by your presence. We ask that you help us now study your word well. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so what we're looking to do here, at least for a few, um, the next month or two, is kind of a combination with the adult Sunday school. Part of it is looking at All Saints distinctives. Uh, We've been blessed with a lot of new families and a lot of new people to All Saints, CREC, and so we thought it would be great to serve the families Uh, and serve all of us to kind of review what is it that uh, are some core principle, uh, theological and philosophical things that we hold to at All Saints, and how that shapes our life here. And then the other part is looking more at an evangelical vision. Uh, And what I mean by that is in the true sense of the word, how do we reach out to our community for Christ? We are CREC, Community of Reformed and Evangelical Christians or churches, And so we tend to really focus on that reformed part, thinking and studying theology and understanding doctrine. However, the evangelical part is something that is critical and crucial to what we do. How do we reach the world for Christ? So we're going to be going back and forth. And I drew the short straw to lead the first distinctives in covenant renewal liturgy. So essentially how our liturgy shapes us. And I phrase it that way because so many times we think, how do we shape our liturgy? How do we shape our liturgy? But really, liturgy is meant to shape us. So I want to talk briefly about the theological purpose behind what we do on Sunday mornings and then look at each element of our service and see how that fits or fulfills our theological framework. I will say that I'm borrowing a lot from this book here, The Lord's Service by Jeffrey Myers. If you have not read it, it is excellent. It kind of is a awesome kind of, it's kind of like the central book to understand what we do. And he draws in from all sorts of traditions and all sorts of history to understand it. He presents a theological argument for the type of liturgy that we hold to here. He presents a breakdown of it pragmatically. And then he gets into a whole other series of things regarding robes and church calendar, etc. So there's three parts to the book. Parts one and two are well worth reading. Parts three are if you really like the nitty-gritty of things. Um, So I'd recommend that. And then also, Pastor Greg wrote this in the Breaking of Bread, Communion on the Lord's Day. Um, Obviously not as thorough, but a very good overview of what we do on a Sunday morning, and even looking at why do we do it on Sunday mornings. The other thing to keep in mind here as well is here's some recommended resources from us as the session 
as pastors. As I mentioned, the Lord's service is kind of the book that I'll be using just as a framework this morning to help shape what we think, uh, to help shape the discussion. But here's plenty of books. You can take a picture of it. If you want to reach out to me after, I'll be more than happy to share with you. All different varieties, you know, so some are very much related to what we do, kind of like the actual acts of what we do, and then some are a little bit more broad picture. In other words, this Treaty of the Great King, the Covenant Structure of Deuteronomy, might not necessarily talk about what we do on a Sunday morning, but it helps give us a framework of covenantal thought, specifically in Deuteronomy, and how that really shapes the rest of God's redemptive plan. And then I put several asterisks down here, Desiring the Kingdom, James K.A. Smith, if you're familiar with him more recently, some of his writings, uh, you know, you just need to read with great different lenses, biblical lenses. However, if you're looking for a book that talks about the philosophy of liturgy and the shaping of human beings, this one is very good there. For me, it really set me on my trajectory of thinking through liturgical practices. So there's some books. Uh, that uh, you could always read if you have nothing else to do or if you want to go a little bit further. So, but I would say the Lord's service is a great one to start with. I don't know if it's still free on Kindle, but for a period of time, it was free on Kindle through Canon Press. So uh, if you're interested in it, uh, if you have a Kindle or Kindle app, you can get that for free. All right, so why do we worship? So why do churches worship? And I just want to take us through a couple different ideas as to... Uh, different church ideas, different denominations' ideas of why we worship. Some of these, or all of these, we've probably all interacted with or familiar with. Some is we worship for evangelism. That is your seeker-driven churches. So we tend to think of your large mega-churches where they're very much meant to reach the unchurched. They are results-driven to get more people in and not discounting their desire that people would come to know Jesus. Some have watered it down. That's the challenge there. But they do desire to have people come to know Jesus in an unchurched type of setting. And so we all could think of different churches in our own county, but throughout the country, that are driven by evangelism. There are some that are driven by education. They're sermon-driven. The focus is the sermon. So everything you do prior to the sermon is just pregame. A few songs, a few announcements, you maybe do a few other things, tithes and offering, but everything is meant to lead up to the sermon. A lot of times these churches, the sermons are 45 minutes or longer, and it's very much driven through educating. We are going to teach people God's word. So we're all probably familiar with that. Some are experience-driven. That's sentimental. We're meant to experience God's love. We're meant to experience God's presence. We do things to draw up God's presence so that he meets with us and we receive it and who knows what will happen. And that's the best part about it. Um, all of us have probably interacted with that church. That is somewhat of my church background where we would be excited if we didn't get to a sermon because that meant God was really present. So the great irony is we wanted to hear from God, yet we didn't pick up the Bible which was a guarantee of hearing from God. Uh, you know, but I tell you what, we had some great experiences. So, excellent, excellent. Um, and then there's this idea of praise and exaltation. That is, and this is probably closer to the Reformed thought, many within the Reformed world, is we show up to worship God and not expect to get anything back. That is, everything is meant to be to worship God. 
and if we get something, great, but that is not the purpose. And that's pretty close to a reform thinking, uh, or very common with reform thinking, but pretty close to our thinking. However, however, really, when we do worship God, and when you see throughout redemptive history, there is this element that you do worship God, but the reason for worshiping God is so that he can bless and give. And so when we look at what we do, it's this, we call it covenantal renewal worship. And what Jeff Meyer says, during corporate worship, the Lord renews his covenant with his people when he gathers them together and serves them. It's centered on the covenant. And so the covenant is, you know, I will be your God, you will be my people. I have done this for you, you will do this, and we'll have communion, we'll have fellowship. And so what is the purpose or end goal of God's covenant? What is the purpose or end goal of what we do? It really is a feast. God invites us to a meal. God invites us to commune with him and eat with him. And this is very much centered or even around human existence, right? If I were to say, hey, come over my house, let's fellowship together, the, the uh, um, ex- expectation is there's probably going to be something to eat and drink during that time, even if it's something light. There's something about communing around a feast, around a meal, that is central to our existence as humans, and it is because that is what God desires with us. He desires to have a feast with us. So, we come to church on Sunday to eat with Jesus and one another to feast in his presence. So why do we worship? It is to come and have a feast. It is come, we have been invited by God to commune with him, to eat with him, to enjoy his presence around a feast. And so that is why we come to eat. So that's important to remember. And it's not just some good idea. That's great. We all like to eat, so I'm going to come to this party and eat. But it's based upon these biblical principles of covenant, of sacrifice, which we're going to see here in a second. But it's very important because why or the purpose or the reason for doing something is going to shape how we do it. Again, think about these large megachurches, evangelism. Everything they do is centered on getting people into the church uh, and even the unchurched. So everything they do is, how can we make this seem so much not like church as we invite people to church? So why we do something very much matters. And so it's a covenant-shaped liturgy, a covenant-shaped liturgy. So I just want to briefly look at the covenant a brief overview of the shape of a covenant, kind of apply it to Abram and Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant to help us get an idea of the pattern we're going. They'll put it all together. So first, God, or Yahweh, takes hold of something new. He takes hold of something. He grabs it, he recognizes it, and he takes hold of it. So in the case of Abraham, Abram is taken hold of. He sets apart Abram for a special purpose. So he grabs hold of Abram. Then he separates. So God separates Abram from his land. He takes him from one place into a different place. There's a separation that happens. Then God speaks. And so this part is the consecration. He has separated Abram for a special purpose. He tells Abram, what is this purpose? He declares his promises. And at this point, Abraham now responds to God in faith. He responds to God's promises and says, I will follow what you say. And then God provides tangible signs and seals. So God says, I will make a promise with Abraham. Abraham responds. And then God says, to mark my covenant with you, 
the sign, the seal that is given is circumcision. So there's something physical that happens to mark that internal spiritual reality of what God is doing in the midst of his people. And then God arranges for the uh, perpetuation of his covenant. That is, God says, not only am I making this with you, Abraham, but I'm making it with your offspring. And so God promises an heir. He promises that this will continue uh, for as long as I am God. So it's a covenant that is continual, that it's eternal, that he promises to do for Abraham. And then he provides that perpetuation, that continuation. So you can do this, and Jeffrey Meyer does it, but you can do this and look at a whole host of covenants in Scripture. What he does with Adam, uh, what he does with David, what he does with Moses, and then even looking at Christ. So that is what God does. He, he takes hold of, he separates, then he, he speaks or he consecrates. Uh, there's a, a tangible sign or seal, something physical that marks this to be true, and then there's a perpetuation, that is a promise that it will continue. So that's the structure of the covenant. The other thing is there's a sacrificial shape liturgy. So the sacrifices or the the means of coming and drawing near to God in your Old Testament also has a shape, also has a flow. And so when we look at it, Numbers 16 through 17, the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and drink offering. So you see this pattern of the sin offering, burnt offering, peace offering. In fact, the NIV study Bible recognizes this. There's always uh, this order, sin offering. There's the burnt offering and fellowship offering. And what it says there at the bottom, first sin had to be dealt with. Second, the worship committed himself to completely, completely to God, the burnt offering. And then third, fellowship or communion between the Lord, the priest, and the worshiper, fellowship offering, was established. So there is sin needs to be dealt with, and then the whole person consecrated to God, and then there was a communion feast. There was the peace offering. And so what we see, if you were to look at the instructions, you see this in Leviticus, you see this in Numbers, the instruction of how they're supposed to sacrifice follows this general principle. And so what we see is from outside to inside, from below to above. So the sacrifice animal uh, is kind of representative of the path the worshiper takes, right? That's the purpose of sacrifice. It's this substitution that what happens to this animal is really kind of picturing what should be happening to us. And so in the sin offering, we place our sin on the animal. The animal is slaughtered to represent what should happen to us because of our sin. And so what we get is this act of separate, outside of the camp, brought in through the forgiveness of sin, consecrated wholly to God, and then we're communing with him. So you have your sin offering. It's separating the sin from the human, the burnt offering, it's an ascension. It ascends. It's consecrated to the Lord. It's chopped up. The skin is removed. All of these different parts are taken out as meant to sacrifice to the Lord. And the whole entire animal is burnt. The whole entire animal is consecrated to ascend to the Lord into his presence. And then 
there's this fellowship offering. That's where the sacrifice, uh, the one who brings the sacrifice, the priests, and God all can eat of it. These first two, the one who brings the sacrifice does not eat of it. God receives it all. This last one, you're allowed to participate and eat. As God is receiving and eating the sacrifice you bring, you, along with the priests, are also eating it as well. So very much, again, thinking through the steps the animal takes are meant to represent the steps the worshiper takes. So when we put this all together and we look at the shape of worship and we consider uh, the direction, uh, Old Testament covenant, Old Testament sacrifice, the direction that went, and what does it play for us, we kind of have to piece this all together. So I mentioned we have a sin offering, which is kind of that separate. Remember I said before, God takes hold and then separates. So the worshiper, his sin is separated from him through the sin offering. The burn offering, the ascension, that's the consecration. That's when God speaks. That's when God sets apart the whole person, in this case the whole animal, for himself. And that whole animal rises up into his presence. And then the fellowship offering, that's the sign and seal. That's the physical uh, That's the physical. Uh, happening that's a physical act in which the person partakes that represents all that is happening and so fellowship offering they're eating of the meal as God is eating of the meal and so when you throw in the other elements to this the entrance that's the taking hold the benediction and exit that's the perpetuation so we have the sacrifice there on the left you enter in God deals with sin the whole person comes up to him, consecrated to the Lord, and then there's the fellowship. And then from there, you have that blessing. The Lord be with you. The Lord go with you. The Lord protect you. And then you go out from that place. So you piece that all together, plus on the right-hand side there, we have the nature of the covenant. God takes hold. He separates. Then he consecrates. He speaks what he's going to do, all the promises. Then there's a sign given to say what God is doing at that spiritual level, you are participating at the physical level. And then there's a perpetuation. I will continue this onward. And so when you combine all those two together, maybe you're seeing the direction I'm going here, but we have the five C's as we call it. You know, we always, we're good reformed people. We need alliteration. So we have the five C's. So if you look at your bulletins each morning, your order of worship, you see the call. And then you see the confession, then you see the consecration, the communion, and then the commission and benediction. And so these here are meant to mirror what's happening at a covenantal and sacrificial level. And so I want to break these down and show why we do certain things here as it relates to the covenant, as it relates to the sacrifice. And so when we think about it, we say, well, this is the Old Testament. What a, you know, the New Testament is different, right? It's different. Jesus, it's better. We don't need sacrifices anymore. Um, I would recommend that you listen to Graham Dennis's uh, teaching about a year, year and a half ago on why we worship. He really breaks down this idea of Christ obtaining a better liturgy because uh, the word here, ministry, in Hebrews 8, 6 is the word, uh, Greek word, as you can see there, liturgia. Liturgy, the idea that Christ does not absolve the pattern of the Old Testament, but actually elevates it because he is the once and for all sacrifice for sin. 
there still needs to be a reminder of sacrifice because we are sinners and Christ has done it. And that if God has the pattern in the Old Testament of how we're to come worship him, that God doesn't change. God is still the same. And so that same pattern is something we should follow in the New Testament. But what is greater about it is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled, completed, and elevated it because it's a better covenant. It's enacted on better promises. What Christ has accomplished is a once and for all sacrifice, and we can enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament pattern still shapes the pattern of worship. Now, there's a lot there, and I said a lot, and there's a lot of having to read between the lines for theological purposes that I just don't have the time to do this morning. Um, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, Jeff Meyer's book does a real good job of breaking down a lot of the theological arguments, exegetical arguments, looking at scripture. My purpose here was just to give you a very broad view of a theological purpose behind the shape of worship. Where do we get our idea of shaping worship? How do we shape our worship? How do we shape our liturgy? And the biblical and the uh, theological reason behind it is all based on this Old Testament pattern of how God de desired Israel to come worship him. And we as his people still keep up that same pattern. It's just elevated. It's different. It's enacted on better promises, but it's still that same pattern. So I want to look now at like the actual breakdown of those five C's I mentioned within this larger framework to share what are we doing on a Sunday morning? Why do we do it this way? Um, and what is each act kind of leading us to? So when we look at our call to worship and our processional at the beginning, uh, the question is who calls who, right? So who calls who when it comes to worship? So there's a song out there, maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't. Elevation music is probably all I need to say to know where I'm going. But there's a song where one of the first lines says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill this atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our heart longed for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. So in this case, it is the people calling to God and saying, you're welcome. You're welcome to come here. I sent out the invitation. I didn't get an RSVP. I hope you're showing up, right? And so there is this idea that, look, we've done everything we need to. We got the music. We got the right hearts. I mean, we have got everything going. All right, you could come anytime. We're ready. Who calls who? Who calls who? And we joke, we laugh, but really the mindset of much of the church um, that we interact with is this idea that we're going to get all of this right. We are going to invite God to our feast, and then we just hope he shows up, <laughs> right? Again, I said it before, we do all these things hoping to hear from God, and we really don't open the Bible and actually hear from him. But it is that mindset, but that is not the case. God calls. God is the one who offers the invite, right? You just look at redemptive history through the covenantal uh, standpoint. God called Adam. God called Abraham. God called Moses. God called David. I mean, we read in Deuteronomy, God says, I didn't choose you guys because you were greatest or the most to be loved. I chose you because I chose you 
out of my grace and love for you, I chose you, not because you were so great that I had to come to this party, right? So God calls us out of the world and comes to enter his presence. God takes hold, right? I said before, he takes hold, and we enter in. That is Sunday morning when we're getting up and we're fighting with our children to get them ready for the day, and we're trying to go. It is not because, guys, let's go. We got we to gotta meet God there. We told him we'd be there at 10 o'clock so he could come. No, God is saying, come and worship me, and we are, we are hearkening to that beckon, that invite to come and worship our Lord together. So God calls. And so then, what happens? We respond to God's word. We hear a psalm read, right? And it starts from the back and moves its way up. It is, we're, we're all coming in together as we hear God's word read. The psalm forces us to hear God's word. And now we have a choice. Do we respond or do we walk out? We are responding to God's call. He is inviting us to come and worship him. He has set the table. He has put out the RSVPs. He is the one that established the means for coming to his presence. And so we hear God's word in the reading of the psalm. God calls us into his presence. Arise now and ascend to the heavenly city. That is a clear invite. We are arising to the heavenly city. We are now starting the process of entering into God's presence to join him with that feast. There's a lot to do before we get there, but that is the invite. And so we say, amen. We stand up as a people and we sing. That is, we are now all together, coming together, ready to march to God's presence. We are ascending that hill in a very uh, you know, meager way. You think about a processional of a wedding. Everybody's coming up to the front to actually participate in this wedding and this joining together. A processional is we as a group are coming together to join in what we've been invited to. And so as we sing... As we stand, as we say amen, we are responding to God's call and now proceeding to enter into his presence, his feast that he has provided and got ready for us. So that's what we do in the call to worship. But we do have a problem. Anytime you are called into God's presence, when, if you think back to the Exodus, God says, I have separated you. I now have a tent. I'm living in your presence. But... We have the golden calf incident, okay? We got a problem because this is a sinful people that God's calling into his presence. That cannot happen. So God provides a means for us to enter into his presence, to make us holy to enter into his presence. That's where this idea of who invites who gets so silly too. We are inviting God into our presence without any sort of means or recognizing that are we even... <laughs> We're not worthy to, to have him enter our presence. He needs to invite us and provide a way for us to get there. And so when we talk about this confession, we have been called into the presence of a holy God. Sin must be dealt with. Remember that sin offering, the separating of sin. And so we have confession. There's the corporate confession. We as a people, very much biblical. Daniel's prayer is one of the perfect examples of that. Daniel, who is a very righteous man, prays to the God and says, we have sinned, we have fallen short, we have not done what you've called us to do. There's a recognition that as, a, as God's people, we have fallen short. But then there's also that individual letter, uh, um, level. You and I, as individuals, have fallen short of loving God and loving neighbor 
as we should. So we need to confess. We kneel because we're posturing our body to match the posture, hopefully, of our heart. That is, we're putting our bodies in a position. We just stood, ready to enter in. We hit that sin wall, and we say, woe is me. And we get on our knees to say, Lord, I humbly come before you and confess that I have done wrong. Then there's the absolution. See, we enter into this having confidence because Jesus Christ has accomplished the forgiveness of sin through his once and for all sacrifice. So sacrifice still plays a part within our service, but it is a done sacrifice. We're not all bringing animals into the service here, bringing them up to get slaughtered, because Christ has accomplished that for us. He has gone before us, and he has died on our behalf. So that's why we can say your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is because Christ has accomplished that for us. He has gone ahead of us to do that. And then we have the ascension hymn. Now that we're forgiven, what do we do? We don't stay on our knees. Why? Because we have overcome sin. We have overcome that which would separate us from God. So we're invited to stand and sing a song of praise. Arise, lift up your heads, and believe the good news. God, our Heavenly Father, has had mercy on us. Yes, that is true, and that's why we stand. We are now ready to continue our procession into God's presence because sin has been separated from us. God has done that through Jesus Christ, and now we can go and hear from him and then commune with him and then be empowered to go out for him. But that is what's critical about this confession time is to recognize our sinfulness, both past and present, but to also recognize that Christ is the means that we can now enter into God's presence and receive grace and mercy for our time of need. So then there's a consecration part, right? Please be seated to hear and heed God's word. You know, that's kind of the phrase that we we use. And so what happens here? God speaks. We have scripture reading. We sing a psalm. We hear the sermon. All of these are God speaking to us as people. Now that we have been forgiven and we have been set apart, the consecration time begins in which we hear from God. We hear his word. He speaks to us through these means that we understand his promises. We understand why he has called us. We understand why he's consecrating us. You think Abram was set apart, separated, and then if he was just left there without God telling him anything, he'd be wandering around wondering, why did this God tell me to come here? But God tells him why he did it. He speaks to him promises. He tells him what he's going to do, what he has done. And so we hear that in the reading of Scripture and in the sermon. We confess what we believe about God. We corporately confess in our creed. We believe, I believe, there is this corporate uh, 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 confession that is also historical. What we believe about Scripture, yes. Yeah. Did the singular version? Yeah. What's the distinction between the... Yeah, great question. So um, in the Apostles' Creed, it's I believe, so Christian. In Nicene, it's we. So depending on which one we're saying, we'll say either Christian, what do you believe? Or Nicene, Christians, what do you believe? We believe. So some are individual, like the Apostles, and Nicene is corporate. Yeah. But why? What's that? I don't know. Does anybody know why the language was put that way? Yeah, historically, uh, the Apostles' Creed is used as a baptismal creed. 
Okay, thank you. Okay, you hear that? Yeah, so uh, excellent question. Yeah, and thanks, Graham. So yeah, that's why. But it is, um, but yeah, anyway, the confession, the creed, um, we believe. We hear God's word, and we're also confessing to each other, but also to God and to the world. This is what we believe. This is, this is what we're standing on. This is our hope. And then we respond, right? We've heard God speak. We know what we believe. Now we respond to God. We offer prayers to him. So he's been talking to us. He's been telling us all of these things. We respond in faith. I believe. We respond by praying, by talking back to God and telling him our needs. And then we also offer our tithes and offerings. What's interesting, if you were to look at the pattern of sacrifice uh, during this, uh, you know, the burnt offering and, and all of this, there are these special offerings that could be thrown on top, these other little offerings that really correspond with the idea of our tithes and our offerings. That is, now that God has told us what he's doing, now that God has told us what he wants us to do, we respond by giving of ourselves and believing by sharing with him our needs, but then also giving of our resources and saying, God, use these for your kingdom. And that's why it falls at that time, because it's a response to God's word. It's all part of the consecration, the setting apart, the speaking to the whole person, and the whole person, then we as the whole person, as the worshiper, responding. And so this is that whole burnt offering, that ascension offering. It, what happens at that time, as I mentioned, it's cut up. Skin is separated, the loins, all of this is, is cut up. And you think about it, that's the idea of setting apart, consecrating, setting apart, sanctifying, setting apart. So what's happening here, the word of God is speaking to us and cutting us up, exposing those things that we need exposed, but also then encouraging. So there's that conviction, there's the encouraging, there is the transforming by God's word. You think of Hebrews and the word of God is living and active like a double-edged sword. That is what's happening. So we hear the words of the law. We hear God speak. The whole person's devoted to the work of God. Again, the whole burnt offering, the whole thing goes up. Not part of it. The whole thing goes up. After it's been cut apart, it's set apart, and then the whole thing goes up, and it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so the sermon, we hear from God. And the word helps us understand the sign that is going to come. And I'll mention that, and I'm not going to steal Graham's thunder. He'll be speaking about the sacraments. But the sermon we hear from God, it helps us understand what we're about to do in the sign of communion. But it's not the end. It's not the final thing. I mentioned before, one of the reasons some people meet is just for the sermon. It's critical. It's important. Right? We're a people of both word and sacrament. We need to understand the story. We need to understand what God is doing. We need to hear from him how we're supposed to respond to his word. But it's not the final thing we do because we move into the communion, the peace offering, the Eucharist. What we do now, we lift up our hearts, we say that. We now commune in God's presence. We're communing with God, the body and blood of Christ. We uh, the Spirit of God is now manifest himself, and we're also communing with each other, with the congregation. We are all now participating in this feast, and everything that has led up to this point is now getting us to participate in this feast. The saint, we sing that Sanctus, holy, 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 
picture of Revelation 4, where all the saints, the elders, the beings are all worshiping the Lord. We're joining in and worshiping the Lord together. So we say, but therefore the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. So we are now worshiping. We are now joining in with the church at large, historical, past, present, heavenly, as well as all those beings that worship the Lord. We are all now in the heavenly presence, worshiping the king together and about to take a feast with him. Again, a feast that he provides, a feast that he invites us to. But before we do that, there's a sign of peace, right? As Christ said on the day of resurrection, I say to you, peace be unto you. This is to, uh, for fellowship, for communion with one another. But also, if forgiveness needs to be given amongst ourselves, this is the time to do it. Before we commune with God, before we bring our gift to the altar, if we know someone has something against us or we have something against somebody, now is the time to give peace. Perfect example, my children. It could get pretty crazy leading up to Sunday morning and certain sins can or cannot happen. It's important that, <laughs> myself included, that I, we always encourage the kids, hey, look, you need to deal with this before the sign of peace or at the sign of peace. Because when we come to commune with the Lord, we don't want any sin or lack of forgiveness to get in our way. And so it's very important that this time here, not only are we saying, isn't it great to be here together, but it's also the opportunity to say, you know what, if I have something against somebody, then I need to go and deal with it then. And so it's a reminder that we are doing this together. Again, we get rid of that individual mindset of it's just me and Jesus here. No, we've been invited as a people. And as a people, we need fellowship and communion together as we come into God's presence and commune with him. And then this is the, the peace offering. It's the sign and seal. It's the physical thing we do that represents what God has been doing at that spiritual level of forgiving our sins, of the story of redemption. It's the feast. It's why we have been invited. And again, Graham will be teaching on sacrament in several weeks, but word and sacrament. We receive the word, the consecration. See, that's when God speaks about his redemption. That's when God tells us what he is doing. That's, why, that's when he tells us why I've separated you from the world. It is to be a holy people. You are my people. I have brought redemption. When we participate in the sign, we're participating in the redemption. That's why within Reformation theology, you need both word and sacrament. Because without word and just the sacrament, you have no idea what you're participating in, and it cannot be received by faith. It's just doing it. But we need both. We need to understand what is redemption as we participate in that redemption. And so that's what's critical about both word and sacrament. So we hear what we're doing, and then we actually go and do it. And that's how God works. Abraham, I set you apart. I have a promise to you. He responds in faith. And the sign and seal of this covenant is circumcision. It is a reminder. It is a physical sign of what just happened at that covenantal level. And then there's a commission and benediction. Again, now we stand. We're ready to depart. We have feet that are ready to bring the good news to the world, to go and serve. So we're standing, right? We're standing. If I were to say, all right, let's all leave here, you're all going to have to stand and leave. That what we're doing is saying, let's stand and get ready to go. We have, we have been brought in. We have been invited. We have communed with the Lord. And now he is sending us out. So stand up, get ready to go. And then the Lord bless you. Go with God. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. We are reminding ourselves of the great commission that Jesus Christ, who we have just communed with, is now with us 
to go out into this world and make disciples of all nations. Um, and thinking through 1 Peter 2.9, I love that verse because what God intended for Israel in redeeming Israel from Egyptian bondage all the way back in Exodus 19, Peter reminds that you and I are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What we've just experienced, this redemption, this coming into God's presence, it reminds us that we are this chosen race. We're this holy priesthood. We are these people set apart for God. But we're not to just reside there. We are now to go tell the world of his excellencies. We're tell the world we were once in darkness outside of this camp. We have been brought in. We want to invite you in as well. So then we say, go and serve the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And that is so critical as well. We serve a God who's alive and who's reigning. So we have confidence that when we go out from here, it is not a dead faith. It is not a dead call. It's alive because our king is going with us. And his kingdom will, is undefeatable. The gates of hell cannot prevail against his kingdom. And so we're going out with confidence that our king is with us, and his kingdom is going into all the world. All right, so I'm, I think that's it with time. Uh, there's a few other things I wanted to mention, but it is time. So uh, any qu- questions with that? Yes. Um, when we're thinking about evangelical, this sort of worship is very much, if you think about the Old Testament, it's really only God's people who are invited to participate in it. And if you think about the things you do in covenant worship and stuff, that's really only for someone who's already professing faith. So when you're being evangelical and inviting people to you know, come to church with you on Sunday, how is there a way to do that that's not going to make them automatically feel like they're not a part of what's happening when you invite them? Yeah. Because they're you know, kind of already on the outside, and then yeah. being a part of all these things, you can't take communion. Yeah. Even the confession of sin and absolution, if you're not believing. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question, and that's where people have wrestled with. That's why there's like a seeker-driven model, because they, they want people to feel part of it. I think um, there, there's two things, just real briefly. One, it's a pattern that is in Scripture, so it's something that we want to at least base it around. But I think, actually, it becomes very evangelical as we talk to our friends about Christ. We invite them to church to experience this and say, what is it going on? I think I want that. How do I participate in it? And then our service is structured in, just, in such a way that it teaches them how to participate in the life of the body. That is, God is calling you, you need to deal with sin, and then he'll set you apart. So I think the service can be very evangelical in that it reminds people of the issue of sin, the holiness of God, and what he has done for that. So um, I think it's a combination of us going out to the world and being a light to the world and sharing the gospel as individual Christians. But it is, I think, our big evangelical push is actually to invite them to the church. They feel like what's going on, and then it creates those opportunities to say, this is what we're doing. Let's, if you want to be invited into this, this is how you do it. Yeah, so it's a good question, and it's, it's one that's wrestled with in a lot of these books is, all right, if it's just for the church, um, what about that? And we want to be mindful of, of those who are in 
that are seeking that aren't in the body of Christ and how we interact with them. And that's where a lot of the personal connection comes in, reaching out to them before, after, inviting them to different events. But ultimately what we want to do is the attractiveness of being in the body of Christ is a means of evangelicalism to tell, to um, encourage people to say, I want this, this life in the body of Christ. What is it? Uh, I think the other night I was talking with some people, I said, strangely attractive. There's something strangely attractive about a, a liturgy. You don't know what it is, but you're like, something big is going on. And then that's where the word comes in. Again, it's very easy to invite someone in and say, go through the motions, but that's where you need the word to explain what's happening as well. So a great question. It's something that the church at large wrestles with, and that's why there's different means of it. Um, but I think the biblical pattern is that it is meant for God's people to come together and we invite the outsiders and say, hey, we've got something strangely attractive here. Don't you want it? So, Any other questions or thoughts? So what I gather is that um, generally the shape of worship is you're supposed to relive God's story about you, not necessarily whatever you want to tell God. Yes. Um, my question is, um, you put that verse in Hebrew. Yeah. Um, how, and you, the word liturgy and ministry, I don't know how those two relate, but I think that's a long question. So it is, it is, yeah. yeah. But, well, my, my other question is, how are we in our particulars sure or more sure that what we're doing is reflective of what Christ desires to do for the church, every, you know, however often, every Sunday or whatever we need? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. So um, I, I don't know if I have time in a minute or two to answer all that. No, no, no. But, and that's, that's where I, you know, I'm saying before too, what I tried to do here is present not necessarily an apologetic of our, what we do because I don't have the means to do that, but just a putting forth our theological thought. That would be something that um, we, let's chat after here because that's a good question. I would encourage everyone to actually listen to Graham Dennis's uh, teaching on it from a year and a half ago on Word MP3 because he spends a lot of time arguing for we can use the Old Testament paradigm, Christ elevates it, and thus that is the paradigm we should follow today. But really, it depends on how you read redemptive history. You read the, um, uh, the continuity between the Old and New Testaments um, and seeing the Old Testament as still relevant in our arguments for worship as compared to being cut off and saying, let's just use New Testament text. So, but we could chat after. But. All right, let me pray for all of us as we go and answer this invite. Father, we thank you for our time together. We ask that uh, you would bless us, give us clarity, and we thank you that you call us to worship you and you provide the means through Jesus Christ. And so we ask that as we come to worship you, that as you draw us into your presence, that you would convict and encourage us, make us more like Christ, and fit us ready to go out into this world for you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right.